Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. This week, we're joining you from the Aspen Ideas Health Conference in beautiful Aspen, Colorado. As usual, I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters from Washington, D.C., and some other special guests as well. We are taping today on Saturday, June 22nd at 8 a.m. Mountain Time. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So, here we go. Today we are joined by our regular panelists, Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. And with us for this special look at the politics of healthcare are Chris Jennings, former health aide to Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Thank you. Good morning. And Lonnie Chen, former health advisor to Republican presidential candidates Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio, and who did a heroic effort of getting here in the middle of the night. Thank you, Lonnie, and welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, For those of you in the room here, we're going to chat for a while, and then we will turn it over to you for your questions, so be thinking. Let's kick this off. Every time I turn on the radio or TV, people are talking about the 2020 campaign, and they say that healthcare is already or is going to be the biggest issue. Do you think that's really true, and why or why not? Well, I think it's very clear that healthcare costs is the driving issue, and anything associated with it, uh, it's the result of uh, a whole trend line for a long period of time of higher and higher deductibles and higher and higher copayments, and the consequence is that people are feeling the pain much more significantly. And I have not seen this ever where healthcare so significantly and consistently is at the top of the polls. It has been for the last election. It continues to be for now. You could the immigration is much lower, jobs is much lower, you know, maybe for understandable reasons. Um, but in terms of real security issues, I think it's going to be the hottest issue, and um, you're going to no doubt have plenty to cover, Julie. <laughs> Bonnie. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think healthcare will be an important issue. I think it, it, it tends to be, particularly when seen in Chris's point through the lens of cost. I think it, it is something that affects all Americans, but it, it's. I think through the lens of the economy and through the lens of pocketbook issues that we get to health care. Um, you know, having been involved in the last four presidential cycles, is actually the first presidential cycle I won't be directly involved in in some way. Uh, I, I, I can tell you that the economy and, and jobs in the economy is traditionally the strongest issue, with the exception possibly of 2004, which was a foreign policy, national security oriented election. Uh, to the extent we talk about health care, I think we will have a very robust discussion about health care, but I do think, again, it's, it, it's seen through other lenses, and I think it will be episodic. So there will be times when health care will pop to the top of the agenda. It will be very relevant. We'll be talking about various specific issues, whether it's drug pricing, surprise billing, Medicare for all, et cetera. But, but I don't think that if you look at it over the course of the entire election, it's going to be the predominant issue. I think the predominant issue will still be, this will be, still be an economy-focused election, uh, as many of the past presidential elections have been. How big do you think health care will be this time next year when presumably we will have a Democratic nominee? Well, I, I think it depends on who the Democratic nominee is. You know, I think if the Democrats nominate someone whose essence or who takes a very strong position with respect to um, some kind of single-payer type solution, and you know, I hesitate to 
brand them all as single payer because in fact there are some significant differences between them. I think depending on who the nominee is, that will largely impact the degree to which it is a, a, a top issue. Uh, you know, and you just never know. President Trump can always raise the issue unsolicited as he has in the past. He could just pop up all of a sudden and say, hey, you know, we'll talk about health care today. And, and the president can drive the agenda. And he does that, that about way. once a week. Yeah, or, or twice a week, or depending on the week, right? But I think a good example of that is women's health issues, which I think will be a very, very significant voting issue that even goes beyond the economy and costs. And so, um, but I, I do agree that if you look at every single presidential race, it's not going to be the sole and only focus. And in fact, there will be no one issues of the sole and only. It will be more personality driven and who is this person and what can they do and what can they deliver for us and how are they framing an issue and how authentic are they and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about Medicare for all, a lot of time. And obviously, if you, you know, are following the Democratic primary campaign at all, you've also read about Medicare for all. Um, it's been painted sort of simplistically as a fight among the 23 candidates as Medicare for all versus shoring up the ACA. But it's not really all that simple, is it? Nothing is simple in healthcare, but I think the Medicare for All discussion really has gotten a lot of attention because it's a, a, an instinctive reflection of the public's frustrations with both cost and complexity in our healthcare system. And if you say Medicare for All, it sounds very simple. It sounds like it's easier to you know, navigate through their healthcare system and it will be more affordable for me as a person. And, and then, of course, as you know and you've associated with, and there's poll after poll after poll, people, when you look at the details of every single policy, people like reform as long as it's not disruptive. And it's sort of a counterintuitive construct, right? But that is the reality. Fix and the system, but leave me alone. Exactly. And so, you know, that's going to be a, a challenge. But to the extent to which people don't really understand that that, that, co that issue, cost and complexity, is not addressed, and I think they're going to be missing something, both from the private sector and the public sector. And those people who can say that their policies address those issues well, and in the Democratic primary, we, of course, care about making sure everyone is covered, uh, I think is going to fall short on this issue. Lonnie, the Republicans are loving the Medicare for All debate, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> look, they're, they're, they're loving it because it's relatively amorphous at this point, and the, the, the thing we do know in a lot of the public opinion data about Medicare for all type solutions is that the more information you introduce, the more complex it is, and the more likely it is that the public is going to react negatively. So if, if Republicans can be in sort of information introduction phase for the next six months to a year, that, that's a great place to be. The challenge becomes once the Democrats have a nominee. And they have a nominee who's got a set of ideas that may embrace some of the ACA, may sort of say, look, uh, we have to go farther in some respects, and, and we can get back to why that's a challenge, I think, for a lot of Democrats. But, you know, they're going to have, the Democrats are going to have a, a, a posture and a plan, and then the Republican, the question is going to be to the Republicans, okay, well, then what is it that you would like to do? Then it becomes a little more complex, and we end up back in 2017 land, which is not a pretty place to be for Republicans or for anyone else for that matter. So, so I do think that there's a little bit of this um, next six months to a year, yes, absolutely, for Republicans, the 
the you know, simply introducing information about what Medicare for all type solutions would do, et cetera, I think that's going to be the posture. They keep using the word socialism. Yeah, sure. And, and I mean, again, this gets back to a larger frame for the debate. This is not just about health care. It's about sort of framing this as socialism versus free enterprise. And I think that's a very useful political frame, quite frankly, for Republicans. But once we get past six months to a year, it gets a little more complex. Margot and Joanne, the, the, even since I think the last time we talked about Medicare for all, um, the debate has changed, Yesterday? right? Huh? <laughs> no, seriously, it seems that the candidates themselves, even the ones who've signed on to the Medicare for All plans, are now hedging their bets. The New York Times did a, an amazing series of videos with, was it all the candidates or 18, 18 of them? 18 yeah. of them. Um, and uh, I think uh, the, if you watch the video, Elizabeth Warren is asked, you know, so would you, do you want Medicare for All or to improve the Affordable Care Act? And she said, yes. Uh, and several other candidates basically did the same thing. Is yeah. that how they're, like, threading this? I've always felt like it's important to understand the embrace of Medicare for All, both by voters and by a lot of politicians, as not about a very specific set of policies, but much more about a series of values. You know, I want the system to be fairer. I want it to be less complex. I want it to be more affordable. I want it to be more fair. And I think now we're starting to get into the nitty-gritty of like, okay, well, like, what does that mean? And there were a number of candidates who were co-sponsors on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, uh, which I should say, you know, Bernie Sanders really knows what he's talking about. He has a very specific idea of what Medicare for All is, but I think a lot of those other candidates were sort of like, well, I want to get somewhere like this, but I'm not attached necessarily to the specifics of this bill. And now as they're starting to see more of this public opinion polling that shows that people are a little uncertain about the sort of full-bore Medicare for All, and as they get policy advisors who are telling them about the difficulties of getting there, you're starting to see them sort of still say that they are aspirationally for Medicare for All, but they're starting to back away from some of the details and say, well, you know, there's some other things we can do that will move us in this direction that might be a little less disruptive. And I think over the next few months, and especially as we get closer to having a candidate, we will have someone who has a specific set of policies that probably is not the same as Bernie Sanders' specific set of policies, unless the nominee is Bernie Sanders. I think all the senators running for president, except Bennett maybe, have endorsed the yeah, they're Sanders on that, they're, bill. On, they're on that bill, yeah. 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 And I think there was a dynamic where they all felt they had to sign on to that bill. I think the conversation, I think the challenge for the Democrats, other than Sanders, who it's his bill and he's committed to it, well, first of all, going back to the very first, where we started with Julie was, you know, what is the main issue in 2020? We, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> so, but the main domestic issue, I mean, we, we, we're in a 24-second news cycle. Who knows what the headline is going to be on our phone when we walk out this room in a half an hour? But yeah, healthcare is going to be important. Is it the most important issue? What aspect of it is most important? We don't know. But we have never done a podcast where we had to sit there in silence for an hour. I mean, there's always a healthcare <laughs> fight. Not that we're capable of sitting in silence. I think what the Democrats have to do is people are confusing single payer with universal coverage. And I think what many of the Democrats, including the progressive Democrats, care about is getting everybody covered in an affordable way. That does not necessarily have to be through the Bernie Sanders bill. You know, the House bill is to do it in two years. I think that makes most people's, you know, heads spin. Um, I think if the Democrats can sort of, the, the conversation has moved to the left. The national conversation and the Democratic conversation has moved to the left. So the trick for the Democrats is how to talk about fairness, equity, covering everybody, affordability, without getting themselves stuck in one specific bill that 
you, you, then you create a dynamic where you can't deliver. You know, the Democrat, if the Democrats win the White House, none of us know what's gonna happen. And if they keep the House, which they have a good chance of, they're probably not gonna control the Senate, probably, looking now. And they're nef they're, we'd be stunned if they have 60 votes in the Senate. So what can you promise? that you can deliver on or that you can make a really, really good show of delivering on without making your base feel like you were full of hot air. I also think the last election is somewhat telling in this. So 2018 was also a healthcare election. We saw in exit polls, you know, people who voted, uh, this was their number one issue. But the promises, by and large, that Democratic candidates were making to their voters, uh, particularly in some of the districts that flipped from Republicans to Democrats, were super focused on healthcare. But they were saying, we're going to protect what you have. We're going to make sure the pre-existing conditions, protections remain in law. We're going to do something about the cost of drugs. These were more incremental promises, promises about preservation, we're not going to let Obamacare get repealed, and promises about we're going to make some small changes to try to make the system work better for you. I think that was not an election, by and large, about Medicare for all. It was an election about the reaction to Republican efforts to repeal Obamacare. And so it will be interesting to see kind of where on that spectrum so we end up. That actually leads perfectly into my next question, which is for Lonnie, which is that, as you mentioned, as Margaret just mentioned, uh, healthcare has been both a winning and a losing issue for Republicans in the last few elections. Obviously, in 2018, not so much. But in 2010, Republicans ran on oh, the reaction to Obamacare um, and, and won. So uh, where, where do you see the Republican stance coming for the next election? Are they really going to be able to get away with just calling Medicare for all socialism? Or are they going to have to actually produce an alternative plan? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm of the school of thought that I, that I think they're better off if they do. And I think that if they do come up with a plan. Yeah, and I, and I, I think the debate is, is advanced if there is something that Republicans can say, look, this is, this is what we're for. You know, part of what 2017 exposed is the, the great degree of difference between Republicans of different stripes on the right way forward for healthcare policy. I mean, you have disagreement even over the fundamental question of, you know, do you keep saying that you want to repeal and or replace the ACA? I think the predominant view in the party now is that language probably isn't all that helpful. So you hear a lot more about improving the healthcare system, you know, changing the parts of Obamacare that aren't working. You know, of course, the president always will throw out the line, well, Obamacare's a disaster. And everyone knows that, but you know, let's talk about X, Y, and Z. So, so you you sort of have, I think, within the Republican conference in the Senate, within the Republicans in the House, and between the White House and Congress, a measure of disagreement about healthcare policy. And and I think that is what underlies this challenge more than anything else for Republicans. Is yes, I you know, I think Republicans have a series of ideas. The disagreement, though, really comes from the fact that people are in different places on this. So the challenge is going to be. It's going to take President Trump, arguably, to coalesce the Republican Party around a view on health care. And, and he's been kind of a, a blank slate on this, by and large, o over the last six months. And so I, He keeps I, promising we'll see a plan in the next two well, weeks. Uh, yes, and, but, he, but he also says the Republicans are going to be a party of health care, right? So I think that it, it is going to take him to come out and articulate during the campaign, you know, this is what we're going to do. And, and then I think Republicans, by and large, say, okay, fine, you know, we're going we're gonna to do our best to get behind it. But you're still going to see these fissures, right? Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Susan Collins are not going to be in the same place. I don't care how many times you play that game over and over again, they're not going to be in the same place. And so uh, it, it is incumbent to a certain degree upon President Trump to try and unify those factions. But I personally am of the view 
Republicans are better when, not just when they're saying Medicare for all is bad, but when they're saying, look, here are some things we'd like to do that we believe are useful for the health care system. Trump just periodically comes out, you know, every month or so, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release a plan next month, and it's going to be terrific. And we never know what it is. At Politico, you know, we internally call it terrific care. But, yeah. or yeah. TBD care. But the... He'd, he'd probably like that. You know, yeah. but, but, I, I just but he also then says that by getting rid of the individual mandate that he's already gotten rid of Obamacare, Obamacare's debt. So on one hand, he says, I'm going to repeal it with whatever he's going to do. And then on the other hand, he says, I've already done it, mission accomplished. So I think we need to step back a little bit here because the law, as we've seen throughout the last eight, nine years, is, is a fairly delicately put together piece of legislation, which can be fairly easily undermined and has been. When we're talking about election choices for president, when President Trump will continue to say he's going to repeal and replace Obamacare, and he's going to say he's going to come up with something different. Now, maybe he won't, maybe he will, but if he wins and the House wins and the Republican and the Republicans stay in the Senate, they will still feel very committed to threatening and undermining the current law and, and changing it. And they may not deliver on it, but I'll tell you, we can't in any way rest easy that some of these threats that have existed for the last three, four, five years don't exist going forward. And uh, yes, the Republicans love the idea of, in fact, the only really common denominator of Republican policy positioning is we hate single payer, we hate Medicare for all, we hate socialism, we hate rationing, we hate everything. And, uh, you know, in the end of the day, what the public is looking for is someone to actually make some difference in their lives on constraining their costs and access to health care. And both sides have to start delivering. And if both sides don't deliver on pharmaceutical costs or surprise medical billing, there's going to be some real anger. There's some yeah, real frustration out there. I, I agree with that, but here's the problem. It's very difficult to actually do that, right? And so what you're left with then is a messaging challenge, which is why the president keeps saying we're going to have terrific care, right? Because he can easily say, look, I've told you many, many times, we've got a plan. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. We're doing a lot on costs, right? X, Y, Z, whatever, fill in the blank. But it's actually very, very difficult to get to, to the steady state you're talking about, which I agree is, is a good thing for the American people if we, if we do something to address these fundamental questions around cost, arguably linked with quality as well. All that stuff is really important. It's really hard to get there. And if you look at the public policy that Congress is considering, even the, the big package on costs right now, I don't think it's going to do very much on costs. I think it'll move the needle here or there and maybe allow members of Congress to say, look, we did something. But the goal you're talking about is a very difficult goal to achieve. Yeah, because surprise medical bills are surprise medical bills. It's being conflated with health care costs. It's something that everybody agrees has to be fixed. Except the stakeholders. Right. Well, no, they all want it fixed, but they want somebody else to pay for it. But they, that's what we call a food fight. But the, that's what we call health care. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, to conflate, the, the conversation right now is surprise medical bills. And that's not going to fix health care costs. It's going to fix a corner of health care costs. Well, but let me just say yes and no. It will affect people's experience of health care costs. It'll pay, it'll it, affect it people, won't address right. health care prices. It'll affect people's experiences who end up in the This ER. is a really important part about public messaging about health care. For most Americans, cost is what they pay. For most of us, when we talk about it up here, we talk about cost to the federal government and the taxpayers and system costs. Cost. And we are talking right past one another. So if you actually pass something 
on eliminating surprise medical billing, the public will actually feel a difference. That, that is an important dynamic. Now, yes, Congress is going to have to figure out a way to deal with the price to pay for the damn thing, and we are going to have to have an honest conversation about prices is unsustainable in this country, and we're going to have to deal with it. Margaret, you want to say something? I think we shouldn't be quite as hard on the president as, per, as perhaps we have been. You know, he keeps saying that there's going to be a plan, and I think a lot of us think that means it's going to be an insurance reform kind of plan. But I actually think if you look at the president's regulatory agenda, you can characterize it as undermining the ACA, as Chris has done. But I do think there actually are a whole bunch of things that he's doing through regulation and that he's trying to do through legislation now that look pretty likely to happen. So, you know, surprise billing is part of that. I think that really does hit people's pocketbooks. It's a, you know, if you look at public opinion surveys, people are really scared about getting stuck with the surprise bill. Like, that's something he may be able to deliver on. There's been reporting in the Wall Street Journal uh, that the president's going to have an executive order on Monday trying to improve the transparency about negotiated prices between insurers and healthcare providers. Now, we don't know exactly how that will play out, but the White House has a case to make that if everyone knew what the cost, the real prices were for healthcare, that it could make the market operate more efficiently. So that's not an insurance reform plan, but that is a pretty um, dramatic change in the way that our healthcare system works, that they are going to make a case could affect the cost of care by changing the way that the market functions. So. And, and there's many other things. I know we're going to talk about HRA regulations soon, but if you look through kind of the things that they have done through the regulatory process, I do think that there are some people in the White House and in HHS who are trying to think about how to transform the healthcare system who have a theory. There's you know a bunch of things in drug prices too. They want to do away with rebates. They're making a bunch of regulatory tweaks. There's uh, effort to try to lower the prices paid for drugs that are administered by doctors and hospitals by using prices that other countries pay. So all this stuff is like a little bit weedsy, but I do think you could imagine some kind of message that packages all those things together that says, we Republicans have a plan for health care. It's not a plan about your health insurance. It's a plan about this other stuff, and it, maybe it sounds a little bit complicated, but what we're going to do is drive down prices, and that's going to make insurance so much more affordable that you're not going to care as much about the insurance regulation. And that points up a, a really big irony, and that's why I wanted to bring up the, the, the health reimbursement arrangement rules that came out, which we will not spend a lot of time on, but I just wanted to Watch make the, the clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, wa I wanted to use it sort of to make the point that the administration is sort of, you know, in a microcosm showing what's the problem that Republicans are having in general on health care, which is on the one hand, the administration is still supporting this lawsuit that would eliminate the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, and it's going before a Texas appeals court panel in the first, the second week of July. On the other hand, they're doing all these regulatory things that in, to some degree, and in some cases to a large degree, depend on the continued existence of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, and, and they're using the regulatory process to great effect because they are able, to your point, Margot, I think, I think they are advancing a relatively coherent agenda if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, our goal is to increase optionality and to use increased optionality to drive competition and lower cost. It also, by the way, gives Congress a blueprint because the, because the president's doing all this stuff by executive action, which the next president could easily say, we're not going to do it this way anymore. Well, Republicans in Congress can say, well, we want to take what the president's done and we want to make it, make it a law, right? We want to make it statute. And it's a very easy thing then for Republicans to say, yes, yes, we're actually for that. So I, I, I do agree with that. I tend to think that it's that it addresses a very small part of a broader set of questions that we've been talking about this morning, but I definitely think that from a messaging and politics perspective, the White House has done enough substantively to give Republicans something to, to, to sort of hang their hat on. 
it is rich that the same administration who has attempted to repeal the law legislatively undermine it regulatorily. I think the word I used was ironic. And, okay, rich for me, uh, and invalidate it judicially is now coming up with an option. And that, my opinion on the HRA dynamic is, it, it may, it's probably not gonna create as many problems as people fear. There may be some risk selection issues, there may be other dynamics. We should actually we should say, say what, what these yeah. are. But the, you, know, you may see sicker populations going into the individual marketplace and see premiums go up as a consequence. Uh, but overall, they're gonna say you have to live by uh, Affordable Care Act rules. And as a consequence, I'm not as worried about this particular policy. Um, I don't think it's going to be as easy as some people suggest to frame it as he's the great advocate for health care uh, and cost uh, containment. But, you know, uh, you know, the Democrats generally have a much, much higher credibility rating on, on health policy, and there's a reason for that. Margo, in 15 seconds, can you tell us what HRAs are? Yeah, so this is uh, the idea is that your employer, instead of giving you a health plan, would give you an account that you could use to go buy your own health insurance. And the rule says that it has to be enough money that you could actually afford a pretty good health insurance plan in an Obamacare exchange. So there's a they have to give you enough money. And the idea is that uh, people might prefer, and employers might, employers might prefer to be out from under the burden of having to deal with health insurance. And individuals might prefer to go buy their own plan that they can keep with them if they switch jobs. Um, or they might prefer to have more of a choice. You know, a lot of employers only give you one or two plan options. In some Obamacare exchanges, there are lots of choices. So I think this is connected to longstanding goals in Republican policy of trying to make health insurance more affordable to like let people actually go into a market to buy things and have the insurers compete a little bit more, but there is this irony, which is, of course, the market that exists now is the Obamacare market that Trump himself and uh, many Republicans in Congress have been uh, running on getting away, getting rid of. But you can imagine this as sort of a framework that could continue to exist in some different regulatory way. Uh, if Obamacare went away or was substantially changed, you might still have this infrastructure that, okay, employers can let people go buy their own insurance and that insurance provided by employers would no longer be the only way that working people could get insurance. And we should also point out that this is one of a series of regulatory actions. They did not repeal Obamacare in, in Congress. We all know that. But they have done a whole lot of rules and regulations that have created some alternatives to Obamacare, all of which is tied up in court. Everything is always going to be tied up in court. But they have um, created pathways for people to get out of Obamacare um, which then creates a dynamic where older and sicker people tend to stay in Obamacare because they can't necessarily do those other options, and it makes the Obamacare option more expensive. This one, we don't, this HRA, we don't totally know how it's going to play out. It, it might have the effect of actually shoring up the exchanges and bringing younger and healthier people, but it, you know, so every projection, every, every projection, it's totally brand new. So every economist who's making a projection is really just guessing. We don't know how this will play well, out. They, their own Economists project it will increase premiums slightly. So, but anyway, you don't need to know more about that. All right. Yes, because I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about drug prices, which is obviously sort of the, along with surprise medical bills, kind of the issue du jour. Uh, Margo, you mentioned some of the, you know, the, the things that are floating around in Congress. There are a lot of bills. There are some bills that have moved. Are any of these things actually going to lower drug prices, or are we really just nibbling around the edges? I think that it's accurate to describe most of these things as being in the nibbling around the edges category. And uh, I've said this before, but I think there's sort of two reasons for this. One, I just think politically it's really hard, uh, you know, 
Ravi was our introducer, and you can see that uh, the pharmaceutical industry is really good at communicating the need for their industry to be able to uh, innovate and make important products, and that they need to have the market function the way that it does for that to happen. And so even these kind of small incremental ideas, many of them have been hanging around for decades uh, and haven't been passed into law, so this would be new. But I also think that the kinds of changes that would really put a big dent in drug prices would have some costs, you know, and, and it would be a different it would be a different and much more complicated policy discussion about the trade-offs, you know, do we want to have lower prices now in exchange for maybe having less innovation later? Uh, and I think that is a conversation we probably will have in more detail in the presidential race because the Democrats running for president, I think, really do want to go further than the Democrats in leadership in the Congress who I think really want to uh, focus on the things that are achievable. Uh, but right now, I think we're talking about small things where there is broad bipartisan consensus that there are problems in the system. There are things that don't work well that aren't really fair, uh, but that are relatively marginal. I think it's really hard to know what's going to happen with drug prices because it's technically complicated. I mean, there's the drug supply chain is immensely complicated. Um, it'll give you a headache, all of you, if we try to explain it. It's, there are all these different rebates and middlemen and different rules for different programs. What you're paying in commercial insurance is totally different than Medicaid, which is totally different than Medicare B, which is totally different than Medicare D. I will stop. But the So it's hard, even if you want to do it. I think the conventional wisdom was that there'd be a little something so that both sides could say... Like, the voter imperative, this is a top issue for Republicans and Democrats and independents. That's really rare in health care. That's really rare in anything. So there really is a political imperative to do something. And I had been hearing it'll be a smidgen. And the last few days recently, I've actually been hearing, no, a smidgen's not going to be enough. That it's one of these rare, as much as the Democrats don't want to give the Republicans a win, and as much as the Republicans don't like some of what the Democrats are talking about, I can see a pathway. I can't see certainty. I can see a pathway where something a little bit more significant does happen because both sides decide it's, they're going to have to go with a win-win rather than a lose-lose. Many of us didn't expect the opioid bill to pass before the election last year. We all thought they would do something, but we didn't think they would necessarily do it as early and as strongly and as bipartisanly as they did before the 2018 elections. And they decided that on that one, I think they just decided it was really the right thing to do and then they also decided it was politically win-win. I don't think we'll see a huge redo of every aspect of drug prices. But remember, you've got one really, really powerful, important... Um, the Senate Finance Committee chairman is, is Chuck Grassley. He is not a fan of pharma. If you still had Senator Hatch, who retired, you'd have a different scenario. Not much would happen on drugs. Ha uh, Grassley wants to do something. He wants to do something bipartisan, and we need to watch what happens there. You, Lonnie and Chris, you both talked about how hard healthcare is to message politically anyway because it's so complicated. Drug prices are, you know, the most complicated of the complicated things in healthcare. Um, although it's really easy to say drugs are too expensive and I want to do something about it. So, you know, how how do you message this beyond the the, the headline, the easy headline? I'm not as skeptical as Margot. I think I I I, I agree, uh, Joanne. There's a strange political confluence here of uh, a president who is... The, there are not many things the president talks about a lot, and drug cost is one of them. He has talked about international price limits using the Part B program for the phys physician drugs, administered drugs. I think we're going to see him being very aggressive on that front. 
And I believe that uh, the House absolutely must pass something on direct negotiation. Uh, and then, you know, if they do, then it's into the Senate's hand. And if President Trump says, I want this thing done, it's, a, it's not an impossible scenario that something could get done. And, and I would say, if you really look at where the public is, they're fed up. Republicans, independents, Democrats, you can cross-tab and pressure test every tough question that they'll throw back, and the public says, I don't care, I want relief. And so, I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying this is easy or likely, it's Washington, and I think sometimes, though, we tend to think nothing can happen because nothing has happened. Uh, but it, it, that's always the case until it does. Yeah, I, you know, I tend to think that there is uh, political motivation on, on both sides to get it done. I, I'm still of the, of the school of thought that it kind of depends on the president. You know, I think the president's the one who's got to say, look, this is going to be one of those rare occasions where it's not going to be a zero-sum game. I mean, if you look at the rest of the president's deals or the rest of his negotiations, there tends to be this view that it's, you know, if you win, I lose. Drug pricing is one of those issues where both parties have the potential to win. The president needs to realize that that's an opportunity and, and seize it. The challenge he's starting to have a little bit is that it does divide Republicans. Drug pricing issues do divide Republicans. And even though Senator Grassley has a history, he also recently said he doesn't particularly care for the international pricing index model, right? So m my view is that as this debate goes on and as Republicans kind of rediscover themselves to a certain degree, uh, they'll realize that some of what the president is proposing is frankly anathema to decades of Republican policymaking and where the conservative movement has been on the marketplace in healthcare. So uh, the danger here a little bit is as the president moves forward, does he risk losing his own party? Probably not at the end of the day, but he'll lose a few. And the question is, you know, are Democrats going to be willing to go along with him if the president decides to step out? I previously also was of the, of the school thought that it was going to be a narrow sliver of something around transparency. But I also have come around to the point of view that that probably is insufficient in terms of what Congress would need to do to act. Lanny, do you think that the president could get on board with direct negotiation? And could that be an effective way to get the Senate Republicans interested in that idea? That's, that's interesting, but surprising to me. I think the president could be for it. Uh, there's a question about whether those who serve in his administration would be for it. And, and then it's another step to say Senate Republicans would be for it. I mean, it's interesting. We, we have yet to really test the bounds of Republican support for President Trump from a policy perspective. I'm not talking about Mueller and all this other stuff. I'm talking about from a policy perspective. When the president did the whole thing with Iran, you noticed some Republicans saying, well, I, don't, you know, I don't know about this. And this, this drug pricing area is another venue where I think were he to push ahead with something as drastic as direct negotiation, it would not go unopposed. There would be Republicans who would say, ah, I'm not We should say what direct negotiation is. This is when, um, when the Republicans in Congress passed the, the Medicare drug bill in 2003, they specifically banned the government from negotiating with, directly with um, drug manufacturers over prices. So what they're talking about are sort of various iterations of having the government negotiate prices instead of the middlemen. Um, I, actually, I love this, but we really need to turn it over to the audience for questions. We have two mics. Um, if you have a question, tell us who you are and please make it a question and not a speech. Who wants to go? <laughs> Down here. 
Hi, I'm Meryl Pothin, and I am a public policy grad student at Duke. And firstly, thank you so much. This was awesome. Um, so the late, great Uwe Reinhardt said that the healthcare debate is more one on ethics. And the question is, um, to what extent do we believe that we are each other's keeper in health and healthcare? And I would love your takes on where we stand as a society on health. Well, he also said it's the price is stupid too, and uh, and and we all uh, miss Uva. Uh, we we often too often miss that in these conversations. I and I think most in the Democratic Party believe this isn't just an issue of coverage and cost, but it's a moral imperative that we make to one another to ensure that people can reach their greatest opportunities in life without undue barriers. And we have not delivered on that in this country. And uh, it, it's a blight, on, it's an embarrassment in this country relative to every other country, industrialized country in this world. Uh, and I think underpinning this debate, certainly amongst Democrats, is we have to finish this job. And, and so part of that debate then becomes how do you pay for it, and that also becomes ensconced in economics and moral priorities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I will say this, and to go back to Uva full circle, it will be very hard to make the commitment, the imperative commitment and the moral commitment to cover everyone if we don't do something better on constraining costs going forward. And um, we have to be committed to both. Yeah, I mean, I think healthcare is fundamentally a, a debate over values, and I, and I think that's always been the case. And where people come out depends on which values you prioritize. So if you prioritize a value like equity, that's going to suggest a certain set of responses. If you value uh, liberty, that's going to lead to a very different set of responses. And so I, I do think that this value debate underpins it all. But I think Republicans have been hesitant to use that language. They've been hesitant to get into that debate because then they're, then they're dealing in a set of messages and a set of discussions where I frankly think it's going to be very difficult for them to win. And so th that's why you see people shying away from it. But yes, it is fundamentally a debate about values more than about policy, I think. So I moderated a panel yesterday about healthcare as a human right, and so I had occasion to look up the latest Gallup numbers on how many Americans think that uh, the government should provide health care to everyone, uh, that it should be the responsibility of government, and that number's around 56%. So that's most people in this country, but just sort of barely most people. And so um, I think a politician that's really interesting to watch on this is Bernie Sanders, who I think, as I said before, is articulating the most specific set of health care policies that he wants to do in the country of anyone in the race, but who I also think is really making a moral argument, and I think part of what he's trying to do is build social solidarity around the idea that we should be each other's keepers, that we do have a responsibility to take care of one another. And I think when you talk to him about what he's trying to do, he says, yeah, like I'm trying to advocate for my policy, but I'm also trying to advocate for these values. I think we have, he thinks that he can convince people of them, and that if he can convince people of them, then you get the political revolution where you can do the big thing. So uh, I think there are certainly uh, politicians out there who are trying to make this argument, but it's clear that the American public, I think, has other values too besides uh, this value that we should all take care of each other and provide health care, and so that is going to be a real challenge of persuasion for people who want to go as far as someone like Senator Sanders does. And I think if you ask just in a really stark yes-no way, is health care a human right? This country has not gotten to, to yes on that. 
I also think there's some issues of, and, and I, I think it's a matter of values. I also think it's about how you regard the role of government. But I do think there's some issues of fairness and equity that have, that, that have changed. I think the, um, the sense of, I think the, the surprise bill is partly a, an argument or a gut check on fairness, you know. I'm insured, I did everything right, I went to the hospital, I, I was unconscious and some out-of-network person came and stitched me up. I mean, people, and I got a $20,000 bill. I mean, people feel that that's not right, that's an equity issue. I think drug costs is partly a fear of your own pocketbook and also an equity issue. And the big one is we really do feel differently about pre-existing conditions as a country. And the needle on fairness there, you know, has changed. And it's why Obamacare did not get repealed. It's because the Republicans went home and saw constituents in conservative districts saying, you can't do that. And it didn't happen. I mean, it was Medicaid, it was other things, but that's, that's really, I think, what... Other, other factors came into the inability of the Republicans to repeal, but the, the, the ignition for that was, was pre-existing conditions. Okay, next question. Hi, thank you. I'm Denise Diani with uh, PBS. Many Americans, if not most Americans, get their insurance at this point through their employer. And as we enter a really ch vastly changing landscape in the dismediation of the relationships between workers and employers, what work is being done on the concept of portable health benefits when we're looking at portable benefits for so many Americans who no longer have a central employer. Right. Look, I think this is the ball game right here in, 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 in terms of the transition our economy is making now. And for, for sort of people who look at it from a health economics perspective, the promise of portability and the promise of sort of having an individual platform on which to build health benefits rather than an employer-based platform has always been the state of nirvana that people have been trying to reach. The, the challenge is, of course, that we have 70 years of history, 80 years of history, and we have kind of what people like and they don't want to get rid of it, right? But as people increasingly work multiple jobs, I think you're seeing some states try to step into the breach and say, can we do, can we do things that essentially allow multiple employers to contribute to what an individual is getting in terms of benefits? You see some of this discussion beginning in the HRA uh, discussion we were having earlier. Is that a vehicle through which that might happen? But this, to me, is the is the essence of the challenge, and it goes can I, beyond. Can I interrupt for one second? Sure. I think Medicare for all is another answer to that question. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it absolutely could be, um, but I think that the that this issue of our changing economy and the changing nature of the labor force this is all related. And one of the inhibitions to greater economic mobility for people who do work multiple jobs is the inability to have health care benefits. And if you can find a way to get these workers, which are an increasing share of the population, still not actually as much as you might think, but an increasing share of the population, we can find some way to bring stability to that uh, type of economic arrangement. I think we will be much better off. And by the way, we'll also then create a platform potentially for the working poor. Because one of the challenges we have with the working poor now is they bounce on and off Medicaid as they become eligible and ineligible. And when they're ineligible, they don't have a great way of getting an employer potentially to chip in who wants to chip in. We need to figure out a way to solve that problem, and I think this is all related to this portability question. And I just say Medicare for all is an answer, but also uh, if you look at some of the other progressive policies that are being contemplating, that they're allowing for, they're designing policies that will allow for employees to opt into the marketplace. Um, and there's now less and less concerns about disruption. In fact, they think it would in 
improve the marketplace, you'd have more competition, et cetera, and then you, wherever you were, you would have health coverage. Some people are advocating for that because they're fearful that the public is hesitant to immediately switch from what they have to something different. That that's where you get into these choices and public options. And you'll see that most policymakers are far more comfortable with that, even if that means a little bit less efficiency. Uh, so I, I could see that directionally happening too. Uh, I mean, look, we have to. If we really are serious about that, if we really want to cover everyone, we probably have to look about, you know, have some of our auto enrollment and some more subsidies to make it affordable, et cetera, et cetera. And I won't go into details, I promise. But it's a very doable thing. And a lot of it has to do with will and commitment. All right, I think we have time for one more question here down front. My name is Nee Hall. I'm the co-founder of the Youth Movement Against Alzheimer's. And I know there's a lot of hot-button issues that you all are talking about right now, but where the real driver of costs are going to be in the next decade is, of course, going to be our aging population and chronic conditions associated with them. So one, why aren't we doing more to highlight exciting policies like the Chronic Care Act, which passed 100 to 0 in the Senate? Like, what? Um, And then two, uh, who is really progressing and advancing uh, cost-saving solutions to chronic conditions in general. Joanne, you're our long-term care person. Well, I mean, the, the, the chronic act that you referred to, it, older Americans, we're not dropping dead at our, normally. We're not. We're, we, we die more slowly. We age with multiple chronic diseases. They're Thank very, you for that clarification. You know, yeah. <laughs> inspiring. So, so inspiring, yeah. I mean, we, we have multiple. You know, your grandparents have five diseases. They're taking 12 drugs. And at some point, they can't, you know, they, they need help. We do not have a financing mechanism for that other than becoming poor and going on Medicaid. Um, we are having some new tools how to coordinate their care better, which does save some money. But this is the big unspoken issue is, is, is the long, we don't have a long-term care system in this country. And it's really hard to, it's really expensive. That's, it's not hard, it's expensive. That's just a cost issue. I think there are many, many things happening that are below the radar that are not necessarily easy to see, partly because of the ACA and partly just changes, partly things that the ACA enabled that we're not fighting about, which is the delivery system side. There are a bunch of steps aimed at moving the healthcare system from a something really with its roots in Medicare's passage in 1965, which was, we did have acute disease. We were dying younger and we were dying faster. It was a hospital-centric acute disease system. The ACA, Obamacare, is helping us move toward a chronic care management system slowly, and it didn't solve everything. There is more awareness of that among the, the lawmakers who are engaged in healthcare understand this, which is in the ones on the relevant committees, and it's bipartisan. There's work being done, there's no solution, and it, it costs a lot of money. But in terms of do we have better coordination as electronic health when we finally get all that interoperability and stuff, you know, can that help? Yes, there are a bunch of things moving toward the reality that the disease burden in America is a chronic disease burden. All right, can you make your question really, really short? To manage costs, we've really relied on insurance companies and markets. And frankly, neither one of those is working. We have oligopoly provider markets where there's no real price competition. Insurance companies are basically, their business model is is managing to forecast costs. They don't really care what the cost is. So what do we do structurally to actually deal with issues so that we can start to have a continuous improvement program and price competition because we're just sort of dancing around the edges. Can I just say that's not a short question to answer? (laughs) (laughs) It's really not a short answer. (laughs) Somebody want to try in like 15 seconds? I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah, this is sort of the fundamental problem here. Well, 
I, I do think people are starting to recognize that, which is the first step. Uh, you're seeing more and more frustration in the commercial market uh, about the prices they're paying. Uh, and, and all the frustration they're having with their insurers and their, and their third-party administrators and their hospital, uh, you would call them almost monopolies. How do you address this? I think you say, if we really do, do want to go away from fee-for-service and go into a value purchasing type thing, we're going to shift the cost and the risk with quality metrics to do it. And if we don't do it quickly, then we're going to just look at Medicare payment rates. And because you're going to have to have a stick it's not going to just happen or evolve slowly. You, you kind of have to kick people who are used to what they're getting into doing something far more focused on the patient and outcomes downstream. I'll just say very briefly, I think that there's a transparency problem. And it's a transparency problem around any measure of cost, but also the outcome side of it as well. And I think we need to do a little bit better and really fundamentally question what is the government's role in, in providing some more of these metrics so people can make the right decisions. Sorry, my 15 seconds is just, I think we're going to see this executive order on Monday, and I think that the case that the White House is going to make for making more price transparency available is that that will be a mechanism to get at some of those dysfunctions. I don't think everyone agrees that that is the right mechanism, but I think that's at least one theory about it, and we're going to be talking about it next week. And it's super hard, but a few states are doing things that may become models. Massachusetts, Maryland, uh, Montana is doing some rate setting. Uh, some of the states Washington. make Washington public options. Um, we, we may see some. It's not going to happen fast. We keep saying it can't go on. Unfortunately, it does keep going on. Healthcare keeps taking more and more of our economy. At some point, we'll hit that we can't do this anymore, and people have to take the tough decisions. I'm not sure we're there yet. All right, I have to call this to a halt because we are out of time. That is our show. Thank you for listening. Thanks to the audience here in Aspen. Thanks to the Aspen Ideas Health uh, Conference for having us. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Chris, you I'm know. Chris Jennings. Thank you. At Lon Hee Chen. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Cannon. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>